1: at a Hockey cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich and joining me today for another episode of the Quarantine PDOcast Rewatchables is my good buddy Murat Atesh. Uh, Murat, what's going on man?
0: Hey just hanging out in Winnipeg, how are you?
1: Good, I'm excited. This is, a, this is a fun one. When I started this series this was one that I definitely was on my initial list of games that I knew I wanted to cover. We're doing uh Preds Jets 2018 and we chose to do game three because I just think it was the best from a storytelling kind of wackiness back and forth perspective i think this game really captured the sort of roller coaster high event nature of this series in general probably more so than any other game although it's a testament to how entertaining a series this was that there was legitimate thought given to a couple other options just because i mean there's so many so many good games to choose from in this individual series
0: yeah, I mean in a series where there's a game 7 and it's back and forth the whole way through the series and it's the one that everybody wanted, right? In that regular season, Nashville was a juggernaut, Winnipeg was on the rise. We wanted this series for so long. Then you get into the you get into the thick of it. It goes 7, but there's one and I agree with you. I'm glad you chose this one. This is the one of all of them that it just the memories have stuck the clearest and I think it's the one that most fans relate to, too.
1: Well, I think the game seven, it's funny you mentioned that, is probably the one blemish on the resume of this series being considered like an all-time classic because the first six leading up to it, no team wins back-to-back games. They're just trading punches. Both goalies at times look amazing and then at other times you're like, oh my god, are they even going to make it through this series? And and by the time we get to game seven, it just it feels like a balloon just gets deflated because Pekarene just gives up these two absolutely horrendous goals, and Peter Laviolette gives him the hook. And it was actually two one for a while there, so it certainly wasn't devoid of of drama because the Predators were technically one goal away from getting back to a tie game again, but it really just did feel like it sucked a lot of the entertainment value out of it when you were just like, oh man, like here we go again, poor Pekka Rene, especially in the grand scheme of things of him winning the Vesna this year and it being this kind of Cinderella redemption story for a goalie that had looked like his best years were behind him for the whatever, two, three, four years leading up to this one.
0: Yeah, what a way to go out and I remember that was the first time, actually, right before Game 7 was my first time joining you on the PDO cast. We set it up. We were talking about how intense it was, um, how how both teams are going 100 miles an hour through the neutral zone, both offensively and defensively. Everything was there. But I'm with you. Yeah, Game 7, those goals go in on Rene. And there's this emotional sense, even within a goal for a long stretch, just like you said, that this isn't a comeback. This isn't one of those games. And you have that sensation the entire way through. Whereas game three and so many of the rest, you know that anything could happen at any given moment. I mean,
1: rewatching this game, it's not necessarily, it doesn't fit into any of our categories. So I think it's just a good sort of intro topic. But what made these two teams. Uh, so stylistically pleasant as kind of like these perfect foils for each other because we saw it throughout this regular season as well in 2017-18 in where they were playing these high-scoring back-and-forth exciting games and that's why we were all so fired up heading into the series because we'd already seen these two teams go at it and so heading into it it really lived up to the building through those first six games and maybe it's just both were really like good well-rounded teams and when you get that type of uh, a meeting you're gonna lead to exciting games or was it something in particular between like the Jets having these two awesome scoring lines and the Predators having two top defensive pairings like what was it about the sort of um the meshing of these two rosters that made these games so exciting
0: Well, in terms of just stakes, every time that they played each other, you had the National Predators, who had a a tremendous amount of success for a few years. I I would say that they were the class of the Western Conference in a lot of ways. And then as the Jets are on the way up, that's that's their underdog year in a way. Nobody predicted that they would go as far as they did. Everybody kind of knew, or at least... I like to think everybody knew that they'd be pretty good. I was calling a playoff spot and I was confident on certain things. But the degree to which that they hit that level. And you know what? I think that one of the reasons why the series had stakes and why these two teams, whenever they played against each other, things went off is they're partly carbon copies of each other. at Five on five. Nashville pioneered that. Well, the defenseman is going to pinch every time. We're basically playing four forwards, one defense in the offensive zone at five on five. And they do that with speed because they have forwards coming back. Jets basically went to the drawing board the season or the summer before and said, how are we going to meet the best practices league wide? And they have essentially emulated that same system. And now you've got, you know, you're unleashing Bufflin and Truba and Toby Enstrom even. He's one of the most aggressive uh fourth forwards uh, in the series as well and when you have that level of speed at both ends of the ice through the neutral zone as well um it sets the stage for quality hockey uh i don't want to turn this into too much of a rant but the next hmm. stage to that and i want to know what you think about this though is is that it's filled with characters hmm. in this series right. like dustin bufflin's dance moves yep. pk Se- suban's celebrations uh, the intensity of blake wheeler the thousand mile an hour um greyhound chasing a ball brandon tanev of the various um amounts of five on five efficiency that you'll get from him um goalies at both ends there was just so much in terms of uh, of unique characters in that on the ice as well
1: yeah and this it felt like this postseason was the start of uh like cbc was really dialing in on that storyline of, of connor hellebuck just staring down the cameras in the locker room before the game and um yeah, I mean, the legacy of this game, it was the number one versus the number two team in the league and not just the Western Conference, literally in the entire league. And I remember feeling heading into it that this may as well have been the Western Conference final. That These were the two best teams in the West that this was way overqualified for a round two matchup, which is hilarious in hindsight, because obviously Vegas swoops in, in the Western Conference final and beats a Jets team that you could argue deserve better but also maybe we're just kind of a bit burnt out from this emotionally and physically exhausting seven game barn burner versus the predators but re-watching this game three in particular that held up really well that feeling of this being so overqualified for this stage and it just felt like with each passing goal like it felt so much bigger than just a round two matchup i don't know in the moment it felt that way as well right
0: Yeah, 100% it did. I'm with you. Like One of my notes, and this is something I would have written at the time, it's one of the things that uh, I would have written months before. uh, I wanted that series 100% I did because of how good the hockey was. And for me, it was essentially the Western Conference Finals as well because of how good those two teams were. Um, I actually asked... Jacob Truba, about a week ago, I got him on the phone and I was talking about bits of this game. Mm-hmm. So just perfect timing on your part, I should say. And I asked him if the series had been played in a different order. Because he was going on about, yeah, they were absolutely exhausted. They didn't know how hard they could work. They didn't know how hard they could hurt. They were burnt out by the end of this series against Nashville that he felt gassed against uh, against Vegas. And as much as Winnipeg carried the flow of play at five on five, there were moments of mistakes where you could kind of attribute it to fatigue if you wanted to. So I asked him, if you played those series in a different order, would you have made it to the Stanley Cup Finals? Mm. And he took a long pause, and I was hoping that this was—I I wanted him to say yes very badly. <laughs> right. Um. But he, in, in the end, he said, you know what, I, I, I can't. What if? Like, right. I, 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 we can't. What if? The this diplomatic response. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's impossible to say and we shouldn't take away from what that Vegas team accomplished that year because they were playing some incredible hockey themselves. So it's kind of a you know, you know a, a big what if, but on the one hand like I think part of what ma- did make this series so special was heading in for the most part, both teams like Nashville had gotten a bit of a scare from this kind of like young feisty Colorado team in round one. Um, the jets lost that game in game three uh, against Minnesota work on Hellbuck got pulled, but for the most part, didn't have too much trouble with the wild in, in their opening round matchup. And so both teams entered this series pretty fresh, as fresh as you're going to be, um, with no sort of real injuries to any of their key contributors. And so that led to the high quality of hockey, but at the same time, you're right. It does feel a bit disappointing that, um, it was at round two as opposed to a Western Conference final or even a Stanley Cup final. But this leads me back to, and this is very topical because right now, you know, this week we learned about the return-to-play format, uh, you know, the what's going to happen with the play-ins and then uh, the league trying to make, you know, whatever it can out of this uh, crazy situation we're in. And, and people will argue about the asterisk or the viability or, you know, fairness to teams. And, and my argument is... I don't think the NHL playoffs have ever really been about accurately determining who the best team is. I think they're mostly about entertainment value and drama and excitement, and we're going to get that with this format uh, it's never been about oh the best like the best team rarely ever actually wins the stanley cup because there's so much luck and goaltending and injuries and and so it, you, this is a perfect example of that with this series where you could argue these were the two best teams in the league that year and one of them was out after round two and the other one was decimated by the time it got to the conference final and and there's not very much justice in that either
0: yeah i i'm with you on that i I I love the idea that the playoffs exist and are long and are grueling. And the Stanley Cup, I would say, you know, the narrative of it being the hardest trophy to win. Well, you see what these guys go through and the amount of punishment they put themselves through. Absolutely. So, you know, are you necessarily getting the literal best team at the end in terms of, you know, the quality of the roster? No, not always, because, you know, because of. Uh, each series, I mean, 60-40 Calgary versus Edmonton or whatever, or Calgary versus Winnipeg, whatever it's going to be coming up. I mean, that's close to a coin flip in reality terms or what have you. You do that a whole bunch of times. Any team can win in the end. But to get it done, they have to go through so much. And that that is drama and that is storytelling. Um, and in terms of their individual experiences, it takes pain and blood and sweat and all of those things that get – um, romanticized by the non-mathematical crowd, and I think that it's important that we maintain that. I personally, I, I think that the drama of uh, them going um, 100 miles an hour against each other, like Nashville and Winnipeg did, is important. And I think it's important uh, to try to continue to, to I don't want to say glorify that, right. but to respect it at the same time as recognizing, well, that no, mathematically, it's not necessarily going to be the best team. Yes yeah
1: well if mathematically you wouldn't you wouldn't throw out 82 games worth of dominance for a, a four to seven game sprint, but uh, there's not too much uh, entertainment value I guess in looking at it that way. Um, so let's kind of set the scene for how we got to this game three. I talked about what these two teams went through in their round one matchups in game one. Uh, it's funny because Connor Hellbuck got pulled in game three against the wild and then he pitched shutouts in games four and five of that series. And then in game one of this series, he stops 47 to 48 shots. And so he's basically going on the biggest bender you can go on as a goalie where he's just stopping every single living thing. And you're thinking, oh, my God, the Predators have basically just run into a brick wall. And then you get into game two, and it's this real fun back and forth, higher scoring game where the Predators win it in overtime with Kevin Fiala. And so we get, enter this game three. It's 1-1. You really don't know what to expect. And I guess that, that's a good sort of uh, a pivot for us here to get into the categories and go with what age the best. So, rewatching this game, and it's not available on YouTube, unfortunately, in its entirety. You can only watch an extended highlight pack, but I think most hockey fans probably have some version of NHL TV or center ice or whatever, and you can go watch the broadcast in its entirety there, like Murad and I did. Let's get into categories. What age the best for you rewatching this game? It's the toughest road game in hockey. You play the Jets, you play their fans. 15,321 of them, and they all know each other. Welcome to Winnipeg, Canada's hockey home. Goaltenders Hellebuck and Rene, referees are Brad Watson and Francis Chiron. It's game three, Winnipeg and Nashville.
0: Well, you have to understand that I'm comparing it to the Winnipeg Jets that I've just watched for the majority of the season. (laughs) And so what age of the best for me is up ice pressure and high speed attack and the idea that every time uh, that the puck's turned over in the offensive zone, you're going to go and try to get it back as aggressively as you possibly can. And like I say, whether that's Dustin Bufflin pinching up the wall, whether it's Toby Enstrom pinching into the high slot to create a four forward one defenseman situation at five on five, Jacob Truba, Josh Morrissey, they're built for that. Even Ben Schrott and Tyler Myers at the at, uh, on the bottom pair for Game 3 are built for that. So Winnipeg is playing this swarming, and I keep saying 4F1D situation, but it's just they're willing to commit in a way That the current Jets don't, because perhaps of the talent deficit on the back end, but because they're able to commit hard with speed, with talent, with guys that are making reads reasonably well, nine times out of ten, you suddenly have options. And every puck carrier, they've got a shot, they've got a couple of passing options, they've got puck support. And the more options you have and the faster you can process them, the better the quality of offense is. The more danger that you can do in, in exploiting defenses Winnipeg doesn't do that anymore so when you talk about what age is the best I simply miss that up ice high Octane round of hockey.
1: Yeah, how many times in this game do you see a Jets defenseman like at the side of the Predators net? I mean the Jacob Truba <laughs> goal he's it's four on four, but he's like in a terrible defensive position. If the puck goes the other way, he's basically trapped. Dustin Bufflin has a couple times where, I mean, he scores two goals from kind of the point in a more traditional defensive setup here, but he has a couple chances in the third period where he's by the side of the net doing these like in tight backhands and, and really just kind of rolling around and not even playing a traditional defensive role, but more so being that sort of fourth forward on the ice. And I guess part of it is, is personal thing. If you have a higher caliber overqualified guy who's actually legitimately skilled the risk reward makes sense because if you get that opportunity he'll actually be able to capitalize where if, if if you have a sort of fringe third pairing ahl defenseman it doesn't maybe make too much sense to be like yeah just go freewheel out there freelance go around the net and we'll see what happens because chances are they'll score much less often than you know the chances you'll give up going the other way if they're trapped so i, I guess the, the palm race's hands are a bit tied but it is fascinating to see what this incarnation of the Winnipeg Jets looks like compared to the one we've seen most recently as you pointed out
0: Yeah, and I mean along the lines of that it's easy It's so easy to miss Dustin Buffin and the impact that he has on games but when you watch game three there are moments, like you say, where you know he freewheels, he's a rover, he's a rambler. And there are moments where he just decides to take things over. He'll chip and chase for himself and crash through two guys. And the Nashville Predators don't want to be the first one to the puck on the boards because they know what's coming if they do. Or like you say, um, a common sight would be his sort of one-handed wraparound as well. And I mean, you're not going to tell um, you know Tucker Pullman to play the same way. <laughs> right. You're not going to tell... Uh, you know, any of the the current Winnipeg Jets to be Dustin Bufflin because you can't. And and, uh, the Jets were overpowered at most positions throughout the lineup, especially up front, as soon as Paul Stastny arrives as well. So there's some things you can do, just like you say, um, when everybody's slightly overqualified for their job that you simply can't get away with otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think it ties into that, what you're saying, but what is the best for me was the pace of this game, the way it was played. It was exactly how I remembered. Uh, It was so back and forth. It felt like, You know, when you get into some of these playoff games, especially as years pass, you kind of glorify the drama or the excitement or like sitting on the edge of your seat because maybe, you know, the result was was tense. But you actually go back and rewatch it and and doing these rewatchables. I've noticed that where you go back and watch a game from eight years ago and you're like, oh, I could basically skim through this entire period and not much really happens. I could just go towards the end of the game. And this one, it felt like you really were on the edge of your seat because if you went to a washroom during play, you were probably going to miss some sort of a scoring chance or big hit or a goal. And so that aged the best for me, the entertainment value of really not taking any shifts for granted or not really being able to skip through any of it because the entire quality of play was so amazing throughout.
0: Yeah. There are no bathroom break lines or pairings or, or matchups in, in this series whatsoever. Um, a hundred percent agree with you on that.
1: I got another one here. Um, Waiting for Kevin Fiala to put it all together. He was one of those like tantalizing young players for me where I felt like every every September, whatever site I was writing at, my editor would be like, Oh, let's let's do a you know, breakout candidates list or something this year, and I'd be like, Kevin Fiala, I love his talent. He skates so fast, <laughs> he's very talented. You can watch these highlight reels of him looking amazing. And he never really fully put it together. He'd show flashes. I mean he scores a brilliant game two overtime goal in this series. He scored 20-something goals for the Predators and sort of limited usage this regular season. But, you know, heading into this play-in series that the Wild are going to play against Vancouver, like, he's going to be Minnesota's top player because in their final 20 games, he had 14 goals, 27 points. Like, he was driving their entire team's offense. And it's funny because it feels like it was forever that we were waiting for Kevin Fiala to put it together. But then you look and realize that he's only 23 years old at this point, and it <laughs> kind of reminds you of how... Um, you know, quick, we can beat a judge or, or write off players because we've been so, um, like we've just become accustomed to these 18, 19 year olds coming into the league and just dominating right away and the league trending towards younger players. But then there are guys like Fiala that take a couple years to actually come into their own. And so just rewatching this, it took me back to those days of sort of waiting for Kevin Fiala to be a star. And then we look at where we are in the present day and, and it's arrived, like Kevin Fiala is a stud.
0: Yeah, it's wild to think that, because we get trained with aging curves and what have you, and we know what the overall trend is. But, you know, in an individual human being's case, I mean, the difference between 21 and a half and 23 is almost, you know, it's nothing pending the amount of opportunity that you get. Um, one guy who sort of fits that role. In a lesser degree, let's let's be clear for me in that case is Jack Roslovic, who Mm -hmm. you see in game three as a as a fourth line forward. He spends his first two seasons in in the NHL averaging eight or nine minutes per game, giving up minutes to to Matt Hendricks, who uh, he's much faster and more talented than. But because of NHL realities, he's not stealing minutes from uh, somebody like that. Well, we're still at the point, now Jack Grosovic is 23, um, where heading into next season, you might finally see him break free of those low-minute totals. So we're finally going to, whether for his fault or not, get the sense of who the first step of the real NHL Jack Grosovic is. And um, does he go off like Kevin Fiala just did? No, he's not going to do that. But can he take a major leap? Well, here we are. And those are the sorts of things that you look for. And you look for seeds of stuff like that in Ep- in these epics like Nashville, Winnipeg, um, what did you think of Patrick Line and Nick ehlers who at this time were coming off major regular seasons, but were a bit snake bitten throughout that that series?
1: I've got both guys in a. Uh for various reasons in what age the worst. So it's it's looking ahead a little bit. Now, not that either guy aged the worst. For me, it's it's Patrick Laine's shooting percentage that aged the worst. Um, <laughs> and I remember when you and I did that podcast that you were alluding to previewing this game seven, that was a big point of discussion at the time. And even when you rewatch this game, the commentators are sort of tiptoeing around and they're talking about how close he's getting to breaking through. He hits the post. Like He has a couple... I, I think he scores a goal in the series, maybe it's even in the Game 7, where he shoots it off of Paul Stasny and it goes into the net, Like, he, but he doesn't get credit for the goal. And so it, it's like this tantalizing dance where you're like, he's getting so close. He's shooting the puck a ton. He's hitting the post. He's He's banking it in off people, but he's not getting the credit for it. And this was also a trendy topic at the time of what's a sustainable shooting percentage for a shooting talent like Patrick Line? You see that release. You see when it goes off the bar and in, you're like, man, this guy's one of the best shooters we've ever seen. But it's come back down to much more of a sort of regular NHL level where he's at 12 to 13% now as opposed to the 18% he was at this point in time. And so for me, that age the worst kind of, just like now that we've had these two years of Patrick Line becoming more of a mere mortal as a shooter and maybe it's an unanswerable question as well of where we go forward with him because i'm I'm curious for your take we discussed it on the pod but it's an endless sort of source of fascination for me of what we can expect from patrick line a into his mid-20s as a shooter
0: yeah it's funny that it's happening against the backdrop of him becoming a progressively better and better player too mm-hmm. right because I mean, in Game Three, the puck's on his stick so rarely. He's not dominating by sheer will or, or physical ability. The puck gets on uh, on his stick, and, and he's got that one trick. And at that time, like you say, his shooting percentage was incredible. And we were we were talking about him as a as a generational pure shooter. I think that the answer to how good he is going forward as a shooter is something that we're continually sort of firing tracers at and just a few steps behind in in sort of guessing what's going to become. So you watch him come out of the gate with his 18%, 19% or what have you. And I think in his rookie season, he shot better at 5-on-5 five five than on the power play. So you know that there's probably a little bit of witchcraft to that, like a little bit of – there's got to be something there that that isn't sustainable because – who outs out shoots himself uh, on five-on-five on five compared to the right. power play. That just that doesn't happen. So something's there. But then he's, he throws a sky-high shooting percentage in his next year as well, and you can watch just like you say. I mean, there are very few players who can shoot in a way that I don't see the puck between release and, yep. and the net, and right. he is one of those players. So um, I'm not sure if if I know the answer, if if I'm like continually just a step behind because shot selection will be another thing. He's not shooting from the doorstep necessarily ever. I don't know to what impact, uh, to what degree that impacts impacts thing. A major debate in Winnipeg this season on the power play was, hey, did did uh, did everybody else figure out the Jets' power play? And and I think well, not. Everyone already knew what the Jets' power play was going to do for, for ages, for years and years. And that's the same deal as in Washington with Alex Ovechkin. But I thought that the quality of service he was getting in those passes meant that he had maybe a fraction of a second. Uh, he was a fraction of a second behind right. yep. this year compared to in past years. So he's not beating goalies as the pass is coming across as a rocket. Uh, he's got to do it with his shot. So does, suddenly he looks like a worse shooter. Is he? I, I don't necessarily believe that. And so I don't know what the answer to what he is. Well, I just think he's good.
1: He he shows it (laughs) in this game and he's shown flashes of it here and there in limited instances. But as he develops, like you'd like to think that this is going to become a much more sort of regular part of his game. I think David Pasternak, he's been in the league a bit longer. He's already shown uh, an ability to do this frequently where you use the threat of your shot as a weapon. So maybe he's only shooting 12 or 13%, but he's actually his on-ice shooting percentage is going to be higher because he's creating so many easier tap-in opportunities for his teammates. And in this game, I think it's the Dustin Bufflin's second goal that makes it, that gives him the lead, I believe where he fires this cross ice pass. So he takes a shot, Pecorine stops it. The rebound kind of comes to him. And in one motion, he fires a laser across the seam to Dustin Bufflin for an easy one-timer for him, which goes into the back of the net and that's something we haven't seen nearly enough of, I think, from Line a as a playmaker, where he's just using the the sheer threat of him shooting the puck and what he can do if he gets it off to drag the defense towards him and the goalie and create opportunities for his teammates. Fisher goes up the boards, Ryan Ellis in some trouble, here's Line a, shoots, Renee stopped him, Stasmita, Line A, across the ice, score, Buckland has another!
0: yeah I think that uh, what you know that laser beam pass is a sign and a symptom that he's always had this by the way. He has always been a plus passer now does he always choose to use it? That's a different thing in terms of sheer execution. Patrick Line is a plus passer and i was I've been talking to or over the last couple of years I've talked to jets coaches about this as well that I think it's one of the most underrated aspects of his game. He in fact, let's use the power play as an example oftentimes. You know, a rebound goes, the puck goes to the wall, and he's got to fire it back across the ice for for Blake Wheeler to reset the whole threat basically from that same spot. And he's beating the same exact seams that Blake Wheeler did to get the puck across the ice to him in the first place, or he makes a good choice about wrapping it around the back. Um, And you started to see this year as well where his playmaking would turn into assists and production as well. First year he's ever had more assists than goals in his career, and I think that goes beyond the NHL which is a wild, wild thing. Um, and he's making fun of himself for that. Like, oh, hey, I guess I got to score more goals, he was telling us the other yeah. day as well. But I think he has the chops. And the unique thing, the thing that I think separates a Patrick Laine from uh, a Kyle Connor, let's say to use a Winnipeg example, or, uh, or well, Pasternak to a certain degree, but Pasternak has so much creativity as well. Patrick Laine has... A few different skill sets that he's he's developing separately from each other he's got a bit of a power forward body right he's a he's a massive human being he can play a okay I'm gonna make a hit take body position protect the puck on the wall like kind of a second half of career Yarmir Yager did he can do the rocket from far away in soft ice uh, and he also seems to want to have the puck on his stick and you can see in game three against Nashville he tries a move that he uses to this day, where it's just a little drag from the on his forehand side as he's approaching a defenseman. From he moves the puck from the heel to the toe, and it's just he's trying to get a sense of space or 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 like by a fraction of a second as the defenseman bites, and he just he has his stick swatted away. Nothing good comes of it in game three, and, and uh, you can tell okay he's he's still pretty young. Hmm. There are all, all these different things that he can do, and I think he's still learning, when do I do each one? When do I need the puck on my stick? When do I protect it for somebody else? And when do I get rid of it to, to create threats on, on opposite sides of the ice? I don't think he had that figured out in Game 3 or in that season when he was scoring 44 goals, uh, but I do think he will um, as, as he ages in his career.
1: Well, I mean, the shot is so electrifying that it's, it's human nature. I mean, the athletes themselves on the ice the opposition everyone gets puck watching especially when the puck goes to him on the power play it's, it's human nature to just look over there and so that means if you're his teammate on the ice you will have less attention on you just kind of uh by rule and so i don't know like he's got what 13 12 17 and 17 primary assists in his first four seasons now those 17 this year are just in 68 games so that's a nice little involvement but i wonder because their power play at this time was so dominant and so lethal, but the game has started to slowly shift. I think the more conventional setup was you have one dominant shooter on one wing, and then you have your Blake Wheeler type of a guy who's just going to be the quarterback and sort of pass it around like Nick Backstrom or, or or any other great playmaker of their day. And now we're seeing, you know, like Tampa Bay, for example, with they have Stamkos and Kucherov. So they have the two shooters, Um, you know, in Boston, you even have Pasternak, you have Marchand, like, I think it's becoming a bit more e- easy or predictable to sort of key in if you just have the one shooter, if you know that the guy on the other wing is really going to be looking to pass and you're going to kind of have to twist his arm behind his back to actually shoot the puck himself. So I think that's a great observation from you when you're pointing out how Line A makes those same passes across the ice to Wheeler, but Wheeler isn't unfortunately the type of shooter that Line A is, so maybe he's getting less of the benefit of the, of the doubt as a playmaker because the puck's going back to Wheeler and then Wheeler's probably just holding it and waiting to pass it back to Line A.
0: Yeah, it's a reset more than it is a second threat. Yep. For sure it is, yeah. Um, and I like the the Toronto, we, we should probably talk about Nashville and Winnipeg, but I like the Toronto-Edmonton style too, where it's almost gone away from that model of, okay, we're going to exploit. We know that we have one more option than, than the penalty kill can defend, so we're just going to wait and we're going to choose the option that they can't get to. Yep. I think that Toronto and Edmonton now are exploiting some roots of puck movement that are creating threats in surprising places sometimes and there there are better ways it seems there's there's a next generation of power play on the way I think with a, with a little bit more what looks like chaos to me um, I, I want to use that though as a pivot to things that aged poorly the Nashville Predators power play. Mm. I know they scored twice in this game. It's the worst example of a game to, to use, but I always looked at that team that year and they passed it across and over the top, l- patiently back and forth. It was an umbrella from like the early 2000s as far yeah. as as far as I conceived of it. And I always thought for a team that was that good and had that many talented players and playmakers, and you have Sub- Subban's shot. Uh, that was something that I thought held the the Nashville Predators back, and and Winnipeg was able to be the better team, special teams wise, overall in the series, despite being scored on twice in this particular game. Well,
1: and the goal, the power play goals that Nashville scored is kind of like, uh, it, it's the exception that proves the rule, sort of, where like their entire <laughs> power play is designed to get the puck as far away from the net as humanly possible, to PK Subban standing at the blue line and him blasting it. And that was a great power play set up in 2007. I don't know. In 2020, I think we've become a bit more sophisticated in our understanding of not doing that and not catering our entire power play around. It. And we've even seen now, I mean, Subban's gone, but it's a lot of the same where they're just trying to get the puck at their point with Yossi and Ellis and just bomb away from, from far out as opposed to... I mean, when you have a shooter and a, a gifted passer as well in Philip Forsberg, it was always bizarre to me that they weren't sort of running their full power play through him as a dual threat because he's magnificent. And, and uh, it's just, it, it's bizarre. And it kind of shows in the results where there's too much talent on that team for them to be, I mean, last year they were historically bad on the power play, but even in their good seasons, they've been kind of middle of the pack or, or in the teens as opposed to a top 10 team based on their on their talent level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that you it's something that you kind of think, well, now with the coaching change, are you going to see that shift Are are you going to see something new and unique? And I'm not sure if Nashville had time to quite figure it out um, over the course uh, uh, of the amount of time that they were able to work with this season. But your point about Forsberg is so well taken. And even I mean, watching this series, actually, it was it was enlightening to see just how good Forsberg was all over again. And I think that people forget, you know, Nashville goes up 3 nothing, and that's the plot of the first period. Yep. Everything's going wrong for Winnipeg. Um, Austin Watson snipes off the bar. I don't know how many times Austin Watson does that in his career. There are some bounces that go through Connor Hellebuck. There's the Subban power play goal, and it seems like everything circumstantially is going wrong winnipeg feels like they're playing okay but they're getting beat three nothing and this thing could go off the rails in an awful hurry the plot of the second period is the comeback but one thing that i forgot while watching their game first minute of the second period forsberg puts one off the post like he's creating chances all over the ice despite the the overall plot of the game being the comeback and he was just so good that line was so good at that time
1: yeah it certainly was and and i have them later on apex mountain but uh one member of that line, in terms of just finishing up my what age the best, Victor Arvidsson has a net front and presence. I love that, you know, he's 5'9". You typically wouldn't think of him as this sort of towering figure that the goalie can't see around. But I forgot just this era of it was so delightful watching him just do that kind of well-timed jump when the when the shot's coming. And it was giving the Jets and Hellebuck fits in this series where there were countless times throughout where he would, someone would shoot it and he would just jump at the right instance and they couldn't see where the puck was going. And it was just, it was such an effective little, little play for them. And uh, this was sort of the peak of Victor Arvidson kind of just coming into our lives and being uh, playing this role much bigger than his actual physical stature would suggest he should be doing.
0: Yeah, and it's I love stories like that because it shows it it shows that it can be about will as opposed to pure physical gifts and the fact that he's willing to to pay that price creates chances for himself. I think it was it was game six and it, that he scored just one of the most incredible deflections uh, of of the series. Winnipeg had the chance entering game six at Bell and T S Place to put the series on ice and not have to deal with the seventh game, um, but he essentially took that one over early with just an. An incredible long distance pucks like at his waist or higher, sort of deflection as well. And again, I I kind of forgot that he was capable of that, especially this season. You see Nashville's numbers falling off everywhere, no matter who you are, it seems. Uh, At that stage, they were willing to do anything it took and and they got results for it.
1: My final, what is the best, is is Connor Hellebuck, just because of this three year. Pocket of information we have on him where in this season he finishes second to Pekarine in Vezem voting. And I think it was deserved for the most part. I mean, he got seven first place votes. He led the league with 67 games, which was really high volume. He had, by traditional stats, a 922 save percentage, which was really good. He was fourth in goals saved above average, but funny enough, he was worse. He was twelfth in goal saved above expected. And it was because the Jets actually became this sort of uh quality dominating team where they're really tightening up everything around them, as opposed to all the previous years we'd seen in incarnations of jets teams that were uh, not as sort of responsible defensively. And so it was funny because after this season, I think a lot of it was, you know, he's getting his new big contract. We're sort of wondering how much of it was him and how much it was the team. And then he really falls off in 2018-19. He struggles. His numbers dip. Laurent Brossois comes in and actually outplays him at times. And you're wondering what's going to happen there. And then he definitively bounces back in this 2019-20 season where he's not only the lock for Lebesna, but I think he should be a heart finalist as well. And he just sim- simply carried uh, a defensively deficient team to heights that they really shouldn't have reached. And so he, he aged the best for me because... On the surface, his performance between this season and this 2018 run are similar, but the actual details of what he did personally compared to the context and the situation around him is wildly different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was his arrival party. This was his proof. This was him coming back, you know, with the second smash hit album that nobody necessarily knew that he had in him. And I agree with the entire way that you that you laid it out. This is the year that he put the Winnipeg Jets on his back. And you know, subtly reading between the lines in the in the pressers that you know a Paul Maurice would have or teammates would have, you ask them why they've had success or why they were in what would have been a wild card spot, less points percentage uh, at the season's pause. Connor Hellbuck and goaltending is number one out of their mouth every single time, no matter what the rest of the answer becomes, and it's well deserved. So when you say definitive, absolutely, his performance this season has been that. That's a good pull, too, because I, I didn't differentiate. I, I think of this as a bounce back to that level, but it is a surpassing of. And I think when when you think about Conor Hellebuck as a human being, he is an emotional guy. He is a fiery guy. He is a competitive guy. Um, he wears his heart on his sleeve in kind of an oddball way. But I think that the doubting and the hating and whatever it was that happened last season when he fell off became a huge motivator for him to kind of step forward and become your performer who aged the best. It's a great turnaround.
1: Well, and now with uh, previewing these play-in series we're having, you're hearing a lot of uh... You know, players worried about playing Patrick Kane or Carey Price in a five game series and how they can dominate. It's like the Flames should be very worried about playing Connor Hellebuck in a, in a best of five play in series because he could very easily just steal three in a row from them. And so uh, it's interesting to see how slow people around the league maybe are to adapt to uh, to new developments. But uh, let's transition to what age the worst? What do you have uh, re watching this in terms of what really has aged poorly over time?
0: Um, well, I, I wanted to say, and this is half tongue in cheek, but it's just because it's so, just so obvious. Winnipeg's defense, mm, right? Yeah. I mean, on, on that team, you have Tyler Myers playing on the bottom pair, Ben Sherat playing on the bottom pair with him in Game Three, and Ben Sherat has been in a top four role in Montreal, and they love him there. Tyler Myers, I think you could make a solid argument for him being a very good number five or kind of a a number four in Vancouver, something mm-hmm. to that effect. But Winnipeg had the luxury of him playing on a on a third pairing. Um, where he was able to actually focus in on his biggest strengths, which are from the offensive blue line in, and he scored a huge goal against Minnesota in the, in the playoffs of that year as well. And then um, when your top four is built up of a Buffalo and Enstrom pair that nobody can score against all season long, um, I think they were top five in as a pairing in terms of expected goals against and, and the various metrics along those lines um, and the chemistry that they had. And then Morrissey Truba, who are your sort of all purpose young stars coming into their own they were the ones that paul Maurice used to play up uh, against the forsberg arvidsen um and Johansson line uh, or partway through the series he sort of figured that out they had a tremendous amount of success against the cycle and against the overlap you look at that and you compare to what you have right now and it's too obvious i yep. can't i can't land on that so you know who i'll i'll, I'll go back to is pk suban hmm. This right. series was the the series that that took him kind of off of that upper echelon of NHL defenders to me, and to watch him kind of swimming on the ice during some of Winnipeg's key goals and uh, sort of falling a step behind some of Winnipeg's uh, key offensive players, it was one of the biggest stages the biggest stage i've ever seen him on and i've kind of taken that small sample and thought to myself well you know what he wasn't there i i expected him to be able to take over moments more than he did especially in his own zone and and i didn't see it happen there i don't know if that's tied to his gradual fall from grace and moving over to new jersey and things like that like i i love so much of what he does for the community and, and other sorts of things i I, I don't like taking him off of that pedestal, but I don't think that his play warranted it at that stage.
1: Yeah, I think physically, certainly, with like all the back stuff. And, uh, you know, the year before during their run to the cup final when they lost to the Penguins, um, him and Matthias Eckholm were like the best defensive shutdown pairing in the league and, and they were simply dominant. And still in this year, I mean, he still finishes as a Norris finalist um in this series they're asking him to play 25 26 minutes a night and they're sort of revolving their offense around and through him with point shots whenever he's on the ice as we talked about but certainly you can see the physical limitations coming into play where he's a, a step slow to react and he's sort of i think swimming on the goals against is a great way to put it because it looks like he's sort of reaching to get to the play and it's already in the back of the net and he's a step step behind and and it's unfortunate and and um You know, maybe it should have been more of a warning sign because I actually thought last summer that it was a good buy low uh, risk to take for the Devils to trade a couple picks and in the potential that he would bounce back for them. But as we saw in this 2019-20 season, it was more of a sort of uh, sign of things to come on the downward trajectory as opposed to a bounce back potential.
0: Yeah, if I remember right, and uh, this would probably would have been just before we were hanging out in and around the draft last year, but that was kind of the time of year that this happened in. And, yeah. and I remember the buzz being fairly positive that you know what, New Jersey made an astute uh, an astute trade there, and maybe they did, right? Maybe there's more to him in New Jersey as the years go by. But uh, for me, I and again, maybe it's because, like you say, he, they relied on him so much. If you really want to zoom in and only focus on plays that end in goals, you can find an awful lot of examples of him being also in picture or a step behind or swimming. And, and it really took the shine off of him as as an elite guy for me that year.
1: I mean – in his defense though part of it was their Nashville was pretty hard matching when they could him and Eckholm versus uh, Wheeler and Shifley and Wheeler and Shifley especially in this game were so freaking good that you know it's going to be the case where yeah you're going to wind up on a, on a couple of highlight reels with the puck in the back of your net when you're playing against those guys and maybe there's no shame in that so I'm I'm willing to give him a slight pass just because especially rewatching maybe it should have been what age the best but um you know, Wheeler finally breaks through and scores that goal and, on the power play, I believe, to finally give them a 5 4 lead in the third. But, I mean, he misses a wide open net at one point. Like, he was, we were talking about how he's not as much of a threat as a shooter as maybe he could or should be. In this game, he was firing a lot and he was trying to score and he finally broke through. But him and Shifley were, were all over the place. They were there, Paul Maurice was leaning on them to play in the 20s throughout the series and they rewarded him with pretty monster performances.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but I agree with you there that that would have been the peak of that duo because Winnipeg uses them together so much. Uh, that was just a, a remarkable series from them. And also watching a lot of the last dance recently and things like that, right? If you guard Jordan, you're going to end up on a poster someday. Mm-hmm. So maybe what you're saying uh, about Subban going up against those two guys uh, is just a just a, a fact of, of, of the situation. And Wheeler was a, a, a monster in this game, to use a Pierre Maguire-ism, is, yeah. um, in terms of just pure chance creation. Long before that, that 5-4 goal that you point to, um, Tons of chances that he was able to create, and I guess we can we can get into that later. Yep. Um, other thing that aged the worst, I think I already hit it a little bit too hard, is, is Nashville's power play. I, I just, yep. you know, kill that. Move on to the next. Uh, move on to the next era of NHL power plays as they get better and better.
1: Well, Okay, let me give you my biggest what aged the worst, and it sort of oh, yeah. it, it stretches out the point you made about the Jets' blue line into um, a a topic and a discussion point for both teams how much roster turnover both teams have had since. And a lot of it is just due to the fact that... And maybe it's what age the, the best in terms of the quality of these two rosters and what age the worst was not being able to keep them together in its entirety in a salary cap world. Where for the Jets, six of their top 11 players by ice, by ice time in this postseason are gone now, right? And it, it was quite the exercise to go back and look at what they were making in terms of cap commitments this year as opposed to what they're making for their various current teams this season where jacob truba goes from 2.8 million cap hit to eight tyler myers 5.5 to 6 whatever but it's a long-term deal ben charott 1.4 to 3.5 brandon Tanev 0.7 to 3.5 and then paul stasny roughly around the same from seven down to actually 6.5 but he gets a longer term deal in Vegas. But then the guys they kept, Ehlers, Connor, and Line A, are all under $1 million on their ELCs at this point. They go to 6, 7.14, and 6.75, uh, respectively. Connor Hellebuck was making 2.25 this season. He's making 6.17, which is good value, obviously, but quite a bit more to be paying. Blake Wheeler goes up from 5.6 to 8.25. And Josh Morrissey. and he's about to start a 6.25 million dollar deal and so it's crazy to see that the jets were able to have all of these players together on one roster one depth chart and then look at just what they're making respectively now just two short seasons later
0: yeah that is that is mind-boggling and earth-shattering and i remember at the athletic even leading into the trade deadline of that season it was a It was a point I tried to hammer home over and over and over again. We all recognize that those young stars were on their way up. And the the sheer improbability of having that many good players on value deals, ELCs, um, it gave Winnipeg a unique competitive advantage at that time. And it let them add a Paul Stastny at the deadline, even though uh, St. Louis ate a little bit of his, his cap hit as well to make that trade work. It let the team go all in in a way that it won't be able to do right now, um, it, and it created a, a little mini window last um, the season that we're talking about right now, uh, Nashville playoffs 2018, and then last year when Winnipeg loses to St. Louis, you know some of those deals had kicked in, but like you say, not all of them had. Josh Morrissey's money is about to go way up, and, and there are others as well. Um, that just to, when you list them all out like that, man, that it, it just illustrates so much of how short. I mean, every team's looking for an advantage always. The cap is an efficiency contest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes there are windows so unique, and that's what this was for Winnipeg in a lot of ways.
1: Well, the Predators had it similarly, where you remember they started that kind of trend of betting on their young players and giving them six, seven-year longer-term deals to suppress the cap hits, where you have Ryan Ellis and Roman Yossi making $6.5 million combined at this point in time, and then obviously each guy's making more than that now individually. And so... um, both teams were in that bucket where on the one hand, they did a really good job of having all this young talent and be able to make the the finances work. But on the other hand, they did a really poor job of keeping that together or maybe um, it, maybe we look at it differently because if either of these teams wins the cup, you don't really lament it because you just go, well, you know, flags fly forever they won the cup doesn't really matter you have that uh grace period now where it doesn't matter what they do because you're still uh living off of the fumes of that stanley cup win whereas because both teams fell short you kind of look back at it and go oh missed opportunity maybe they should have been more proactive thinking ahead and either trying to move money out or or trying to make it all work knowing that you know eventually they would have to pick up the tab on all these guys so it's kind of a, a, a mental gymnastics exercise depending on the result and we kind of we have the benefit of hindsight, whereas the GMs, unfortunately, don't.
0: Well, if you're the National Predators, you hang that divisional flag, and that flies forever um, after that season cup or no. I, I think Winnipeg, too, just to, to throw it in there, Like, I mean, they went hard at, at, at Paul Stastny in an attempt to come back last year with the same roster that they had done so well with, and um, absolutely, it would have taken more work, but you see what looks like, in hindsight, a pretty clumsy cap dump where you give up on Joel, Joel Armia mm-hmm. to, to Montreal and, and Steve Mason at the time, who never plays again, um, and that's done to make some room, and yet Winnipeg would need more room on top of that if they were able to fit Paul Stastny in at the time. I think that the guy on the outs there would have been someone like Matthew Perot at four-plus million, and Winnipeg, for whatever reason, was using him on the, on the fourth line at that time. Um, I think that that deal for Armia and Mason, pardon me, as a cap dump, was was great and was proactive and was a sign that they were trying to bring back this guy that seemed to fit in so perfectly, um, but it didn't work. And then that further wounds, uh, you know, I think Joel Armia would have looked wonderful in Winnipeg this season as well. And, and it's just like you say, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight and these guys are making bets in real time. I, I, I don't know that you can blame, and I uh, certainly I know Winnipeg better than Nashville situation. I don't think you can blame the Jets for their cap reality right now in, in terms of, um, you know who they lost I I think it's wise to let Ben Chirot sign for the money he got in Montreal or Brandon Tanev in Pittsburgh or Tyler Myers in Vancouver so I think that they did the right thing but those guys are all helpful useful NHL players and, and certainly you pay the price of that too
1: well I remember that bi- that trade design in particular was a big sort of uh, a watershed moment for Winnipeg where for years we'd all go oh man Kevin Shuttle Dayoff's not doing anything they're they're sort of uh conservative to a fault here and they saw an opening and and you're right they went and paid out a premium they got paul stasney as a rental which was a very um you know counterintuitive move to the way winnipeg had operated over the years and they saw an opening there and and it was such a perfect fit because for the entirety of that year we'd we'd go oh man a second line center especially a potential sort of passer and playmaker next to line a would look perfect here and he fit in so seamlessly where I think they went 15, four and one or something. After he came into the lineup, they bounced up to a top three shot share team, which we know is a good indicator heading into the postseason. And so it looked like a great move. Unfortunately, it was just for a short period of time and just that one playoff run. And it's kind of funny now to look back and, and, uh, and sort of they tried to rekindle that magic with the Kevin Hayes trade at the deadline the following year where another sort of second line center playmaker trying to kind of rekindle that magic and obviously did not work out as well for them after losing in round one. But um, yeah, I, I guess we do need to give Kevin Sh- off a bit of credit for seeing that opening and actually pouncing and acting considering uh, sort of the stigma that he'd had as a GM heading into that season.
0: Yeah, you might say that his reputation aged well as yes. a result of that year as well, because he sort of, like you say, he proved that he could read the room. Essentially, right? It was taking advantage of the unique context presented to him, and then going all in uh, in a way that you hadn't expected before. So I think that that has probably bought his reputation. We had a fan poll at the Athletic uh, kind of early this pause. I was going to call it an off season, but <laughs> it is not. Um, and and just the the fan support for for his work, despite the Buffalo scenario and everything else that went on this year, um, is really high. And I think that. I think that for a lot of fans that paul stasney trade was that waters watershed moment nobody saw it coming they knew winnipeg was shopping but stasney like that was well, it was a coup
1: and stasney waived as no trader no move clause to to allow that trade to happen as well so um it, especially considering we'd heard, heard for years that players didn't want to go to winnipeg right and so seeing a player of stasney's caliber decide to go at least, at least for one playoff run was a big sort uh, of moment for the franchise a couple other what-age-the-worst here, just to quickly go through it. We've already talked about the fact that Game 7 was such a sort of anticlimactic uh, disappointment. Uh, Patrick Laine's shooting percentage, uh, the playoff format with 1-2 and two going head-to-head in, in Round 2. Here's one for me. Paul, Paul Fenton is shown celebrating with David Poyle as his assistant GM after one of the goals. And he's hired by the Minnesota Wild 19 days after this game. And he's fired by the Minnesota Wild 14 months after this game. So uh, Paul Fenton, what a, what, a, what a run.
0: Yeah, if anyone wants to deep dive that, look at Michael Russo's sort of behind the scenes of that year. Like one of the most revealing uh, pieces that I've ever seen. And, and I, I wouldn't have picked that up. That's a great point by you, how far that star had, had sort of fallen uh, in such, a, such an incredibly short time.
1: Yeah. Goalies leading the net. This is a big point of contention for me. I don't like when goalies leave the net. I think the risk reward is is so firmly in the risk category that it's not worth it. And in this game, Pekka and I know part of his charm or part of his uh, allure is that he's such a good uh, puck handler and he creates a bit for the Predators. He fights for checks. And especially we're talking about how aggressive Winnipeg was in this series. They needed it at the same time there's one play in the first period i believe where he's leaning to go out of the net and patrick line almost beats him comically from center ice faking a dump in and then later on in the game he leaves the net and the puck goes to blake wheeler wide open in front and he just basically misses a wide open net and so there are two instances where it could have been a catastrophic result for Pekarene in this game just because he didn't want to stay in the net and it's a it's an interesting sort of discussion because i know opinions vary on this but i just think of it as like How many good plays would Pecorine have to make stopping the puck along the boards, getting it to a defenseman for it to justify one goal against because he was in the wrong position? Like 10, 15 times he'd have to make a nice, a subtle nice play. Like it just, it's, it's out of whack for me. I just think goalies, unless it's like a very obvious situation, should probably stay in their net and uh, focus on stopping the puck, which is their job.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it, could you build the probability tree of the sequences. I mean, every marginally better breakout leads to you know some percentage of of, of blue line entries at the other side, which leads to some percentage of shot attempts and scoring chance. I don't think it's there. And man, I I got a big kick out of Patrick Laine. Kind of uh, you know, there he knew what he was doing that entire play. You know, he he picked off. And just about scored a goal against the flow of play at that time. That that was special. And I think that it's not a hill that I die on because I, I like just visually the idea of, you know, a goaltender coming out, making a pass. Like there's just, for me, that's more fun than the alternative of nothing happening or waiting for a defenseman to go in. but. Uh, especially Jets fans will know that it has burnt Winnipeg too. Connor Halbuck is a phenomenal puck stopping goaltender, but there have been a lot of examples over the last few years where his puck handling gaps lead directly to goals against, including against Vegas the very next series. Mm. There were a couple of key goals against the flow of play, and it just seemed to me whether it was fatigue or whatever it was that Winnipeg controlled um you know scoring chances and shots, and you know where they were getting their shots from. But all the expected goals don't, in the world don't mean a thing if there's no goalie in the net to to stop the eventual turnover.
1: Yep, yep, that's well said. Um, so you mentioned Nick Ehlers earlier. What age the worst Nick Ehlers takes? And it's particularly <laughs> uh, with regards to playoff performances where in this run he has just seven assists in 11 games, zero goals on 26 shots. Uh, he's scoreless, zero points in their first-round defeat against the Blues the following year. But... Man, uh, there were a lot of times where it looked like the Jets might be perilously close to panicking and potentially trading him for whatever amount of cents on the dollar. And he rewarded their patience and their loyalty by having a monster season this year where he's 14th in 515 points per hour he's leading the league in penalty differential he and you see it in this game i mean he draws i think two penalties in the third period but he's such a neutral zone monster where he's just taking the puck from one end of the ice to the other so seamlessly in the blink of an eye and and you can probably count on one hand the number of guys who are capable of doing the stuff he can just as a puck carrier and so the discourse around him has always been so silly to me considering that People cite his point totals, failing to recognize that he's not playing on that top unit power play. He's not getting the benefit of any of those easy points. And a lot of the stuff he does is just as important, even if it doesn't necessarily show up on the traditional box score.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the cases where counting points is just so limiting in the evaluation of a player. And that's what leads to the idea of trying to study more than how many goals and assists a guy gets. Um, That said, just to use the points example too, um, if you go for the first... X games of his playoff career that Nick Ehlers has played so far. I think he's a point or two ahead of Pavel Datsuk at the same point in his (laughs) career, right? I mean, like, they're... I can see and I can even in this game, I can see I can understand watching him and thinking that there are moments where he is outmatched or out of his element in a certain on the wall in an intensity uh, sort of context. And one of the interesting things that happens in Game 3 specifically is that is after Nashville goes up 3 nothing, there's a winger flip. Kyle Connor goes down to the line with Paul Stastny and Patrick Laine. Nick Ehlers joins Mark Shifley and, and Blake Wheeler on the top line. And Nick Ehlers, part of what makes him great, his ability to fly through the neutral zone, read what's in front of him, adapt to it as as he's going as fast as he is, makes him unpredictable for Blake Wheeler and Mark Scheifele. And that's been a, I don't want to say point of contention, that's not the right phrase, but you can watch over the years of Nick Ehlers making cameos on that line that he creates so much and does so much. And his net effect is so positive, but there are moments where plays die because Blake Wheeler and Mark Shifley haven't figured out who Nick Ehlers is or what they're doing yet. And I think that's part of why they like Kyle Connor on that line as much as they do, uh, because he reads off of them in a much more consistent fashion. So I could see the point of bringing that up is I could see a fan watching this game, seeing that he doesn't have massive point totals in that playoff. And then looking at these moments where they just kind of appear to be off rhythm on that line and go, okay, this guy isn't ready for it. Well, I mean, he's also an extremely young player on the cusp of what's eventually going to become, you know, this season, a, a huge breakout. And he's still getting better, too. So great point by you to, to have him imagine he was traded last year imagine he was traded for some top four or five defense uh, at the draft last season how that would have taken the the success off of the jets uh you know the amounts that they were able to have this year it just doesn't work
1: okay, my final what-age is the worst and we'll move on to the turning point poor pecker a we mentioned it earlier no one who will be able like in the category of goaltending is voodoo like just his performance in this series is just inexplicable right I mean, he has two games in here where he's remarkable, I think. And they're both in Winnipeg, actually, in game four and game six, where it looks like they're dead to rights. It's over. And he has a shutout in one game. He gives up only the one goal and makes a number of critical saves. And he sort of looks like that uh, really uh, mobile, athletic, just big goalie that's stopping everything in front of him. And then he gets pulled in game one. He gets pulled in game seven after just 10 minutes. And he gives up five and six goals in the two other games. And it's like the performance is just all over the place. It's, it's the ultimate sort of boom or bust or hit or miss uh, in this series where you really had no idea what you were going to get from him from a game-to-game perspective.
0: Yeah, nothing really to add to that. I, I don't know if there's a goalie who has more of a boom-bust reputation in in my mind. And, you know, that series seems to encapsulate it. The guy could do anything uh, from dominate, like you say, to that game seven, man. I mean, like how how do you... How do you come back from that the next season, by the way? I mean, you're the Vesna winning goaltender who gets pulled 10 minutes into game seven. And yes, uh, you should be on the on the hook in terms of responsibility for those goals. I mean, do you simply just accept that that is the right thing for that moment? Or do you take that personally and does that become something that then affects your ability to play and move forward for that team going forward? I, I don't know what to say.
1: Well, considering his performance since, uh, it probably did affect him. But at the same time, he's in he's 37 now or whatever, so it's probably just age-related as much as anything as opposed to a, some sort of psychological experiment. All right, uh, the TSN turning point. There's so many to choose from here, but obviously, in a game that is so evenly divided between 3 0 in the first period and the Jets coming back, and you've revisited this, you talk, as you mentioned to Jacob Truba about it, you given a thought, you rewatched it. What really sticks out to you as like where this game turned? And it can be more than one point, obviously, because it is kind of the seesaw performance.
0: Yeah, I think that you have to find something in that three-goal swing in the second period. And I don't think that it's Paul Stastny's goal where Jacob Truba bounces it off of him from a long distance to make it 3-1. I don't think it's quite there yet. Those two goals on, four on at four-on-four uh, Bufflins and, and Trubas within 18 seconds of each other I think it's got to be something in and around that so I for me the TSN turning point is Austin Watson going out of his way to get a shoulder kind of high up on Blake Wheeler's uh, high up on Blake Wheeler takes a penalty Mark Shifley goes after him and all of a sudden it's four on four I don't know that it was a vicious hit i don't think it necessarily was but it was a hit that austin watson could have avoided and there's this build up all of a sudden there's a night there's a next wave of intensity and certainly winnipeg ends up exploiting four on four uh coming back into the game tying it taking all of the momentum and eventually taking a stranglehold on the game i think it starts with uh with that cycle by the jets leading up to it and then austin watson's hit on wheeler
1: so you mentioned this earlier but my turning point is the Truba goal, uh, well, Truba bounces off Stasny, it's part of it. But it's this entire sequence of, so with 30 seconds left in the first period, Bufflin turns it over, Mike Fisher hits the post, and it very easily could have been 4-0 there. And then 30 seconds into the second period, Philip Forsberg hits the post, and so you have two such close calls there within basically a minute of real game time that could have really blown it open, I think, and instead... It stays at three nothing and considering the offensive caliber of this jets team, you never really felt like they were fully out of it, although I will say the crowd was pretty eerily quiet for a large stretch there where they were just sort of in disbelief and waiting for for something to happen, and then eventually it does, and it just com- the roof just completely blows off the building but um, I guess it kind of ties into. That's my turning point, but it's also tough to distinguish between the most rewatchable moment. Because as that game starts to shift, that is the most rewatchable moment, where you just like you need to you need to be glued to your TV or your laptop screen or wherever you're watching it, because the energy and excitement in the building is just electrifying. Think about it; it really should be a tie game right now. Here's Stasny to Wheeler, side of the net.
0: Game. Yeah, the loudest I have ever heard Bell MTS place, and so that's an arena that gets loud and gets loud consistently at big moments, um, was Jacob Truba's goal to tie it up at 3-3. So for me, that is the most rewatchable moment because coming out of Buffalo's goal to make it 3-2, um, the, the building is already as loud as it tends to ever get. And the street parties outside are, are just dancing and and, and, and roaring, and, and you can get the sense that the whole city has come behind this team. 18 seconds go by, and then you have Blake Wheeler flying into the offensive zone, laying the body. He was a very physical player that series. Mm-hmm. You have Paul Stastny getting a piece of Roman Yossi to slow up his pass. Jacob Truba, like you say, He's to score net. that yeah. goal, he has to. Yeah, and he rounds the net on his way there. Before that, he before he does that, he cuts off Ryan Johansson at the wall. On a forecheck that comes, he starts off camera when that pass is getting made, and he ends up there. It's the most aggressive pinch you'll ever see. So the whole building is just going nuts at that point. And then for him to come around the net, get the pass from Wheeler, corral it, put that in, everything goes off. That is, for me, uh that is the most iconic goal of, of the Jets' 2.0 history at this point.
1: Yeah, and because I think Wheeler had missed the net just prior to that, Jim Houston actually goes... This should be a time game. Tie game right now, like literal seconds yeah. before it is a tie game. So it it turns out being very prophetic, and obviously in the mix, the crowd is already hyped up because it's three one, but shifley defended wheeler, so bufflin scores to make it three two, and he does a jig. I don't know. It was it, it was like a it was a strut sort of like he like pops his jersey a little bit, uh, to the crowd to celebrate, and then they talk about how in the previous game or earlier in the series during a celebration, he had basically like punched Paul Stasny in the face by accident. And so the players and the jets didn't want to surround him. So he was just celebrating on his own. And then when he scores to make it four, uh, three later in the period, he does his famous. And when we tweet out this podcast, I'll include the gif of him doing a little bit of a dance. And that's sort of the most memorable moment to me. When I think about this game just remembering in the moment of him scoring and that enthusiasm and that excitement. And it was like the full Dustin Bufflin experience. And it was, it was so fun to watch. And so that has to be the most rewatchable moment.
0: The Dustin Bufflin experience is just a great way to phrase it because there is no other player like him ever. As far as I'm concerned in terms of personality, the sheer amount of fun that he has. Yeah. I can get right behind that. And his whole career in in Winnipeg, from winking up at the camera in the middle of a scrum while while battling a defenseman, um, you know, singing along in the penalty box, and then you get on the biggest stage possible. I think it had already happened in the series where he pulled two guys out of a scrum yep. in Game Three, and now he's doing like the strut, like you call it, on on his first goal, and the flat out dance on the on the second. Like, it's a man in his element having the most fun of his life and dominating some of the best hockey that uh, that, has, that we've seen in Winnipeg, at least speaking for our market. It, it's just, it is the, the iconic Bufflin experience. Well, well phrased. Well, it, it
1: transcended hockey. It, it felt like it was like a, a performer, right? Which I guess, uh, it's considering that we're watching the game, they, the players are performing for us. Right. It's entertainment. And so I guess everyone in theory is if you want to get literal about it, but like just with the crowd going crazy and him and him dancing and sort of uh, they're serenading him and he's taking in the moment. It does feel like sort of uh, like a musician at their apex or something or like a WWE wrestler and the, and the crowd is just like living it, eating it up. And, and he's uh, in his element, as you put it. So it's a it's a really magnetic performance. And I just loved it so much. Um, the biggest heat check.
0: Yeah, so I've been trying to sort out exactly what constitutes a heat check performance. So you want so, me to give you mine? Yeah, hit me.
1: So when I think of biggest heat check performance, like I wouldn't put Blake Wheeler in this because he's such a, a consistent contributor to them where you just expect him to be dominant and to be running the offense. So when I think of heat check, I think of like a player who typically plays a smaller role and in this particular game sort of does stuff beyond their regular Uh, resume or their regular uh, performance and so for me I had Tyler Myers because in this second period during this turnaround and I thought that the commentators did a really good job of pointing it out he was completely flying out there I think I'm not sure how much of it was they were down three nothing so Paul Maurice told the team listen like we just need to create more offense we need to be more aggressive how much of it was in the team's identity to begin with but he's basically taking the puck behind his own net on various points and just going fully coast to coast and creating with those long strides that are pushing the defense back to the point where on Bufflin's first goal, he does a combination of a zone exit zone entry that leads to the goal five seconds later. And he's a mobile defenseman, certainly, but especially as his career has progressed, I think the number of occasions where we've seen him perfectly execute that have been kind of limited. And I guess that when you see a play like that, that's what gets you, To pay big money for him in free agency because you're like oh man there's you can count on you know both your hands how many people in the world are physically capable of pulling off what he just did and he just did it so seemingly effortlessly now unfortunately that's not a sort of staple in his game but in this particular performance i thought his skating was was masterful and as you mentioned he was for all intents and purposes like a third pairing defenseman for them at this point Here's Tyler Myers. Has he ever fired up in this second period? Skates the puck to center. Two on three in the middle for a little. Here's Buckley. He shoots. He scores!
0: Yeah, yeah. They would absolutely find ways to get him minutes, but he was the third-pairing defenseman, just a luxury in, the, in that in that spot. I, I used to marvel at this this deke that he would do from a standstill at the blue line when he would get the puck and he'd get a forward come and pressure him, he looked off so many different players putting pressure on him at the point and was able to basically use his long reach to take whatever they left and deke around them from a standstill because he is a six foot seven defenseman with a wide wingspan and then he'd attack from there. But that coast-to-coast sort of stuff, yeah, he would try that from time to time. But execute it like that, no. Um, from the blue line in, there were things that he could do that no one else in Winnipeg had the, the, the chops, the reach, and the, the brazenness. Well, maybe Dustin Bufflin would have had the brazenness. Right. But there's something special about Tyler Myers attacking from the blue line in. Mm.
1: Uh, biggest that guy. Uh, so for <laughs> me, it's, I mean, Matt Hendricks. I come kind of yep. forgotten and then it's funny because uh you know he has this uh this kind of like legacy as like a dressing room dressing room leader but it's really funny there's like some hilarious tweets out there where like Oilers beat writers are suggesting that the reason the team fell off after the 16, 17 season and regressed was because Matt Hendricks wasn't around in the room to lift people's spirits and all this stuff and and it's 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 funny, like, I think it happens in every sport, but in hockey in particular, like, sometimes the legacy of some of these guys, like, vastly exceeds their actual on-ice contributions, and and I think Matt Hendricks is a perfect example of that.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated by Matt Hendricks and and the cult of Matt Hendricks, to be sure. I want to say, first and foremost, and and lead with this, that, you know, of the various NHL players who I've been in a, a room with or a scrum with or interviewed... Uh, he does absolutely stand out in the top 1% as having, like, the guy has an aura of some kind. There's there is a calm, serious confidence to him that just exudes leadership. It really does. You see him just moving through space, and he commands respect. I I perceive that, and that's how I see him. Does does that mean that at the speed he was moving in this series, which was one of the fastest ever at that point, um, that he's not a play killer? No. Because he's a step behind. He's their fourth line center. And he called himself, even then, uh, he felt like a pace car. And all the other cars were, were actual race cars flying by him. And it it looked that way. You can see it. You can see plays that don't get made because he's not at that pace of the of the rest of, of the game. So, yeah, I absolutely, I'll, I'll laugh all day at that at the suggestion that <laughs> it was the absence of Matt Hendricks that, that is the reason for Edmonton's struggles at times. Um while also wanting to respect that he is the leader that he is described as, even if that doesn't necessarily change what happens with a puck and a stick and skates uh, when when the puck gets dropped. Yes.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I have time for that. I think when you lose sight of the fact that the Jets were good because of you know, Shifley, Wheeler, Ehlers, Connor, Line, Hellebuck, Bufflin. <laughs> I think those guys were maybe more impactful to the result than Matt Hendricks giving locker room speeches. But obviously just like any workplace setting, having someone that can kind of step up when things are tense or having someone who people like and can confide in and can talk to and can brighten the mood when, when situations are rough, like heading into a your locker room during the first intermission when you're down three, nothing, like there's certainly something to be said for that i just sometimes we can i think sports writers can get a bit carried away because it makes for for a great story and can sort of like uh it's a narrative that's very easy to paint even though it might not necessarily be fully true
0: yeah absolutely and we we all love our narratives uh, you know as writers and, and and fans love narratives as well and i think that when a guy is unique enough that you can kind of again, like, I, I don't know if this sounds hippie-esque, but you can sort of feel it in the room. You can feel people defer to him. And if you as a writer are are actually feeling an emotion that you then leave the room with, you know, whether it's a guy that got angry or blew you off or, um, you know, like, cuffed at you or treated you really well, you leave the room with a feeling and then it's sort of up to you to sort of distill that and whether you want to portray the emotional uh, situation and you end up overstating it because you feel something or whether you want to try to distill that and come up with some sort of, uh, of rational truth. Um, you know what? Honestly, I think about Matt Hendricks in that series and he stood out to me as a, as a that guy too. He's yeah. on my list. Uh, I think about the overtime goal that I, I think Kevin Fiala scored mm-hmm. and um, that play starts with Winnipeg's fourth line on the ice in great position, Matt Hendricks cycling the puck behind Pecorine's goal. And there are a whole series of plays that go wrong, that Winnipeg is in a 50-50 position, uh, and uh, first it's Andrew Kopp tracks back to try to cut off the forecheck. He's 50-50, it doesn't work. Jack Roslovic has his back. He's 50-50, it doesn't work. But one of the major reasons that I remember, or the things that I remember thinking about that play, is that what happens between Hendricks' giveaway behind the goal and him getting off the ice such that somebody can get onto the ice and, and pressure that two-on-one, maybe turn it into a two-on-two, I think there's a lot of Winnipeg Jets that would have gotten there fast enough to stop that two-on-two from necessarily happening just by the speed of the change alone. And that's that's my on-ice take away of Matt Hendricks in that series. Um
1: the other guy I have is, is Toby Enstrom. I kind of like it's it's been a good two two, it's, buddy. It's been, it's been a bit of a time here, but man, like a sub six foot defender that was probably ahead of his time and I think would have been much more appreciated had he come into the league a decade later. But um just you know he was still awesome on that pairing with, with uh Buffalo at this point. And it was it was also funny, like I just he at this point in time, they maybe just because of the embarrassment they riches of riches they had on the blue line, but he was like exclusively playing at five on five. In this season or in this postseason, I think he was playing like sixteen minutes at five on five and he averaged sixteen minutes total for for, for the full postseason. Like it's it's hilarious <laughs> to look at where he literally did not play special teams at all. So um but yeah, I mean, just one of those guys where he was just like even later in his career, so positionally sound. Just made these little plays. Like even in this game, he has one moment where he goes back to retrieve a puck and a four checker's coming on him and he makes this little like backhanded chip play off the boards that goes to Bufflin who then has the opportunity to make a play and all of a sudden they're flying out of the zone in transition and it's not something that necessarily shows up even if you were tracking zone exits but it's something that he does constantly and effortlessly and just contributes to, to winning and successful 5-on-5 play
0: I I think one of the biggest litmus tests for me, if you're a Jets observer, and when we watch hockey, it's so easy to focus on the big punctuated moments, right? And The the goal that happens, the giveaway that leads to a goal against uh, the great save or whatever it is. Um, Toby Enstrom does so many things that won't show up on the highlight reel that put the puck in a better place. And I I stand by this. Nobody put his defense partner in better positions than Toby Enstrom did in terms of just Reading the play in front of him, making a reverse when it was appropriate to do, and not as a panic safety valve as so many guys will do when they're under pressure. Enstrom had the presence of mind to do that, and his box outs are absolutely legendary. There are so many scoring chances that you never see because this five foot ten defenseman with a, a, a stick that's probably better fitted for a six foot four player. He always played with a comically long hockey stick. Um, was boxing out and the puck just gr- like glides through the slot instead of turning into a scoring chance. Um, I think that he was an underrated player in Winnipeg, and you look, whether it's through an analytical lens or if you just zoom in on him, ignore the puck and ignore the things that don't happen, you think of the things that he prevents. Um, I, I think Winnipeg missed him. Mm. I will say a footnote on that is that i think part of his low minutes in addition to him being perhaps underrated was he had all, all kinds of foot pain and foot yeah. injury situation there yeah. as well his body
1: was breaking down for sure in the final couple seasons um oh well final biggest that guy so alexi emlin is, is playing the third bearing in this game for uh for the predators i kind of forgotten that they traded for him he never played for vegas but they took him from montreal at in the expansion draft and they flipped a pick for him but the the predators for a couple of these years when they had that dominant top four that was basically playing for like 50 of the 60 minutes they were like listen we're gonna have two guys and we just need you to go out there for eight to 12 minutes and just not mess up and it was usually like Matt erwin alexi emlin yannick weber actually has a ridiculous goal later in this series but they were shuffling guys and it, it's it's just so funny to me like the the job requirements for them were were so hilariously minimal where it's basically equivalent to to your traditional fourth line player where it's like you're gonna go out every once in a while just maybe you know just mix it up but please don't mess up and that's all we're asking for you and so it was funny to see that um doc and eddie's commentary corner so we watched the uh the cbc broadcast here with jim houston and craig simpson what did you think of it in hindsight
0: uh, in hindsight, I have to be honest, I don't like it as much as I thought that I would. Hmm. Um, I, I grew up just in the era that these two guys were becoming the Hockey Night in Canada uh, go-to people. Yep. And I I was a huge fan, an absolutely huge fan. I thought that there there was just a sharpness and you got more information from them speaking than uh, sort of the, the fellas that were... Just legends in Hockey Night and Canada lore, but were perhaps towards the end of their career at that time. And I remember just gunning for Jim Houston and Craig Simpson to take over as these guys. Um, I, and I continue to think that they're articulate and informative and perhaps the standard. However, there are moments in this game where I think something wild and emotional happens. Uh, and there's a, there's an emotional resonance that they, they, they simply don't hit yep. and whether that's Bufflin or Truba's goal, uh, there, there are moments that they're just articulately calmly explaining something that should, from a fan's perspective, to my mind, be 11 out of 10 and you don't get that emotional sensation.
1: I completely agree. Houston has that sort of consistency where it's kind of like a metronome. And I actually think uh, Simpson does a really good job of breaking down the X's and O's and sort of pointing your attention to certain things after the play when they show the highlight of what you should be looking for as a casual fan. And so I really appreciate that. But the most recent rewatchable I did with Allison Lucan was the Blue Jackets and Lightning uh, Game 4 from 2019. And for all the jokes you can make about Pierre Maguire and all of his faults, like he's yelling the entire time. But in that particular instance, because the crowd is so raucous behind him, it actually sort of meshes with the cinematic experience of that game. And as this game crescendos in that second period with the Jets making their comeback, you would like to see a bit more of the commentators capturing that feeling. And instead, it's it's just that sort of steady consistency of them calling the game and telling you what's happening without actually sort of buying into the vibe, which is weird because if this game feels like a Jets home broadcast, even though it is technically a national broadcast, it's because it kind of is. Like, you know, they lead into this game and and Jim Houston saying, like, welcome to Winnipeg, the home of Canadian hockey. And I remember I started with Sportsnet in 2016 and, and that was the postseason that no Canadian teams made the playoffs. And internally, they were freaking out because obviously they would prefer for the Canadian teams to be in there because of revenue and because of viewership and everything. And so um, I think... You know sportsnet and and Canada in general was really buying into this from sort of selling that story of a Canadian team making a run and so even though this is a national broadcast, it certainly does feel like a jets home home telecast,
0: yeah, I noted and quoted the home of Canadian hockey as well because I thought to myself, because you're right i you know I, I covered that game in the press box. I didn't hear anybody commentate that, but I go back and I think of that I'm like, well, there are a lot of places in Canada that have the, the right to argue that they are in fact the, the, you know, the home if there is such a thing. Um, and I just I found the other quote that, that really just threw me off, and it's, it's when Paul Stastny has that goal go in off of him to make it 3-1 and Winnipeg has life, and, and there's, there is a chance. It's not a dramatic goal. It doesn't come from a phenomenal player or zone time or whatever you, you might look for, but there's silence and then a delayed reaction, but a reaction indeed. And it just sounds mm-hmm. that's what that's from from Jim Houston's voice. And it just comes off as as robotic to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it depends on what you're looking for. And let, let's be real. He's one of the very best that does this. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is this is nitpicking. Uh, and it speaks to what I look for from a commentator. And to use a Winnipeg example, I think Dennis Bayak is one of the best that that live at this job. And the reason for me you you'll find moments where he says the wrong name or what have you and if you're going for 100% accuracy he probably lags behind Houston on that front but when the game crescendos to use your your great word Dennis back crescendos mm-hmm. you know what the stakes are just from the tone of his voice and it carries a certain amount of tension when it needs to uh that for me you know I don't need you to pronounce uh you know a fourth line uh Uh, name obscure name exactly correctly i need to feel like you you're conveying the emotion of the moment and and that's what i what i worried about uh when when rewatching this
1: well and then this is the kind of an unanswerable question but it ties into the broadcast why do broadcasts focus so much on face-offs like i'm genuinely curious because i wonder if part of it is they're so easy to notice and kind of call attention to and break down in a quick highlight after the fact or is it that a lot of the people calling the games are probably more old school minds who, when they were growing up, face-offs were propped up as the most important stat for a centerman, for example. And so there just hasn't been that much of an evolution. And maybe they're thinking that catering to their audience at home, for the most part, everyone knows what face-offs are. Generally, yeah, winning it and getting it back to your players so you can have possession of it is important. But when you watch these games, there is like they prop it up so much where you would think that the face-off was the be-all end-all and that the 20 seconds of play after it weren't nearly as important
0: (laughs) yeah I I think that you hit on the most likely reason I'll I'll add one more but the idea that you can you can easily whatever your level and these guys are often lifelong hockey people and often even former players but no matter what level you are you can break down a face-off and and convey the result of it. It's easy to, to frame and, and discuss. And you get trends, I think, in broadcasts. And, you know, now that entries, entry stats are, are, are so prevalent or shot attempts or what have you, um, sometimes the micro stat of the du jour, let's say, mm. gets talked about because someone's gotten onto that topic in their own research and now they can't unsee it when it happens. Uh, So they have to describe it to you as it happens. And I think that's real. That's just human communication happens in trends. The other reason I think that face-offs get so overrepresented is is how emotion connects moments to our memory. Mm -hmm. If you watch hockey for long enough, if you play hockey for long enough, whether as a fan, a beer league player competitively, there is some moment that someone won a face-off that they needed to and you scored and your team scored. And you will never forget how that play went down. And you don't think about the rest of the faceoffs from that game and how they affected possession or the rest of the puck battles from that game. You remember the moment and it sticks with you forever. And we all know, like, I think the one that comes to mind is Jordan Eberle in the World Juniors, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there's a faceoff win and and a puck kept in at the line. We'll remember that faceoff for a really long time. And I won't ever remember another faceoff that took place in that entire 60 minutes of hockey.
1: That's well said. So maybe it was an answerable question, then. We just answered it. There we go. Um, yeah, we sorted it. Yeah, I guess that gives us one less, one fewer unanswerable questions. So let's get into the unanswerable questions. What, um, what do you have from this game or the series?
0: Uh, two for me. And the first I sort of touched on earlier is that did this series kill the Winnipeg Jets when it came to the Western Conference Finals? Is it the reason they didn't beat Vegas? If you played it in the other order, would Winnipeg have made it all the way to the Stanley Cup Final? Uh, I don't know that we can know that Jacob Truba didn't indulge me and he he conveyed that you know we'll never know the answer to that as well but I I like thinking about it sometimes because it it it's instructive as to you know if that's the case and this it informs us as to how the NHL should maybe proceed in the future when you have two of the best teams by far meeting so early
1: yeah that's the ultimate unanswerable question because even you know even if the players had an opinion on it there's no real way to sort of quantify it because it's this this hypothetical what if but you know the big one for me here is and i'm not sure would have necessarily impacted the outcome of the series although it was so close i mean i think for the series the high danger shot attempts were 84 to 83 for winnipeg like it was it was just such a tightly contested series and we just propped up the Stasny acquisition, how perfect it was, how well-timed it was for, for Winnipeg's needs. What Nashville did in this trade deadline was they traded their first-round pick for Ryan Hartman. And he has a big goal in this series earlier on, um, or I think maybe later on in Game 4. And But ultimately, he's like kind of a bit player for them. He's a fourth-liner. He's playing like 10 to 12 minutes per night. And it's just such a bizarre allocation of resources to identify him as someone that you're giving up your first-round pick for when you're a team like Nashville. And you can kind of lump that into their entire decision-making because they had this sort of hot run where David Poyle was considered to be the top GM in the league. He constructed this team and got all these guys with great value and won a bunch of big trades. But then they kind of lost their way. Like I think his white whale is sort of this like uh, second-line center, which is kind of ironic because Paul Stasny was that for Kevin Chevaldeoff, and he found him. But for Poyle, I mean, he signs Nick Bonino to a four-year deal in free agency the year, be- the summer before. Then, in the middle of this season, he trades Sam Girard, who's a great young defenseman, and a second-round pick for Kyle Turris, and then pays him this big six-year extension. Um, the trades they made, like they were just—it's this endless pursuit to the point culminating this past summer in signing matthew shane to this crazy long-term contract as well like they probably still haven't found their ideal center combination but they've just been searching for it for so long and so for me the unanswerable question was considering how close these two teams were could nashville have been pushed over the hump if they had better allocated their resources this season considering they didn't really have that much to show for the first and second round pick that they burned to make those trades
0: that's that's fascinating and i I remember the 2018 deadline after this series where the the vibe around the NHL seemed to be that Nashville was trying to prepare itself for just in case it had to face Winnipeg and it was as if their takeaway had been that they got pushed around as opposed to you know beaten uh, on the score sheet and they sort of went chasing you know different solutions perhaps than than what might have necessarily made them better on on the ice. uh, Oh, you know what they uh, did? They
1: traded a second round pick for Brian Boyle as a rental because he's a big center and that didn't work out. Then the year after they're trading, or I guess that same year they're trading uh, for Ryan for, for uh, Wayne Simmons. They trade Kevin Fiala for Michael Granlin. They're making all of these sort of reactionary. We need to win now and get players who can maybe be better now, even if it means sacrificing our future. And if they get over the hump and they win the cup, everyone's saying great job you did you push the right buttons but because they didn't we look back at that and go man like it'd be nice if they had sam gerard and kevin fiala and all of these young players that are cost controlled right now
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i'll i'll pivot from there to my second uh what if or more um or a- unanswerable question is center related for the jets as well right because paul stastny comes in and he fits that need he went on on a PDO bender. Let's be real about that. That um, in terms of the percentages on the ice, and you mentioned uh, Ealer's trying to get going and Liney trying to get going, and they were b- bouncing goals in off of Paul Stastny. You can you can just watch with your eyes all of the various goals that that line scored, and some of them you know will never happen again. Um, but he also played. F- phenomenally well at five on five he brought those young guys above 50 percent in terms of the shot metrics he was a huge part of the power play which got even better when he took that exchange role with uh with Blake Wheeler on on the side instead of Kyle Connor um he did everything he was supposed to do and so and Winnipeg is still lurking for his replacement Kevin Hayes a hill I will die on is that Winnipeg will never know how good Kevin Hayes was I think he's a fine second line is center Mm -hmm. Um, but Uh, he was not played like one, nor did he necessarily deliver the results of one in Winnipeg. But I think a lot of that was usage based. And I think Winnipeg will never know that he was actually a portion of what the Jets were looking for. I I think he got close, but he's gone. Winnipeg's still looking. And, you know, unfortunately, Winnipeg, one of the big stories this year was Brian Little takes a puck to the ear and he has um, all all sorts of uh, problems ongoing from that. And he's still a question mark for whether he will or won't be available in any return-to-play scenario. So even in the two seasons before when they looked to upgrade Little, now he's a question mark in Winnipeg at centers. It it continues to be very thin. So unanswerable, what if Paul Stastny had signed with Winnipeg in that offseason? Could they have gone further than St. Louis last season? Would they have been able to continue to, to capture what magic he had created or was winnipeg simply due to transition out of uh, elite and into sort of a retool this year no matter what
1: and i have to say like i thought as a ufa center and we know those guys typically get paid premiums regardless of you know potential risk uh, on on the back end of the deal like he took less than i thought he was going to get in free agency now part of it is uh, he probably wanted to go to vegas also the tax ramifications like i'm sure he actually winds up making more than than the simple uh, sort of cap friendly uh, figure that you see, but yeah, I think especially the three year part of it. Like I would have thought that he could have gotten four, potentially even five years as a free agent, and heading into his 30s with uh, a, a sort of a deteriorating body and missing games throughout his career. Like I would have been worried about that type of a deal. But if you told me that it could happen for three years, like maybe that just wasn't on the table for the Jets, and, and that was only a, a Winnipeg sort of a discount that they got. I'm not sure what the story was there, but that's a good unanswerable question of how close they got to actually, uh, sort of engaging in those conversations.
0: Yeah. And solving the problem in in a meaningful way to, to go forward, patched up and, and, and really then not need to, to make that trade at the deadline for Kevin Hayes or whatever it was and whether the Jets were able to put in two years or three years, whether they were not quite able to get up to that 7 million ish figure Um, Or, you know, what I believe is that probably, you know, Vegas would have been a priority all along or that Winnipeg wasn't Winnipeg was close but just not quite there in terms of uh, Stastny's long-term destination and and whether he had been able to keep it up I'm not sure that we know
1: the best book that anyone can ever write is the trades that fell through and My big unanswerable is how close were the Jets to trading Nikolai Ehlers at any point over the past two summers? and I would say it's probably closer than a lot of Jets fans would uh, would hope. Um, I'm not sure exactly, although I certainly know there's some merit to uh, the conversations involving the Sabres and Rasmus Line and, and that's a scary thing to think about. But ultimately, the Jets came out uh, looking good on the other side, and sometimes the trades you don't make are as good as the ones that you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's definite... Uh definite tough to say in these shoes but I certainly believe that the smoke around Nick Ehlers trade was real and uh, uh the idea of of that return R- Ristolainen who can do a lot of things well but is certainly not a top-tier defenseman and even though he he gets perceived as one because of the things that he does well and then you think of Ehlers as step forward yeah you just made me gulp you know I almost spit take my coffee at that moment
1: um all right let's move on to Apex Mountain um Patrick Lanny's beard as two guys on a video <laughs> chat right now with with quarantine beards, Patrick Lane's puts us to shame and it was insane and I kind of forgotten about it cuz it's been a while now but my god.
0: I get asked about that beard as much as any other Patrick Lane question, I think. It's it like I it just it was so I mean, he's a, a young guy, but he got a lot of rattiness and bushiness and and scra- its not thick enough to be a top tier beard, but it's long enough to convey like a scraggly sort of, um, I don't know, charming rural finish, uh, <laughs> like dirtiness as a compliment yeah. to to it. Like I, it, it's tough to put that thing into words. I, I'm kind of glad that uh, it's gone, but uh, but you know what? If the fans are out there wanting it back, then Jess will just have to go on a playoff run. Uh,
1: I mentioned the Jofa line with uh, Ryan Johansson, Philip Forsberg, and Victor Arvidsson. You know, this season, uh, 2017-18, they were just insane. Like 33 to 15 goal differential, 56% shot share. They outscored teams 10-5 in the postseason, and 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 they were a nightmare. And they were really tough. Uh, it felt like they were creating a lot, pretty much whenever they were out there against this Jets team. And so um, especially since like that was their only real kind of conventional scoring line that could just generally organically create offense. Otherwise it kind of felt like they were pulling teeth. And so, uh, you know, they had a lot of pressure on them and they delivered. And so I certainly think they were at their apex. Was there, anyone else it's it's really tough because there's a lot of guys who are like borderline but also there's a lot of guys especially for the jets where you would like to think that their best performances are still to come so it's kind of tough to say
0: yeah you know what the, the what i keep going back to and it may not prove to be the apex for either of these players and in fact there's probably a good argument that it's not but the 55 26 mark shifley blake wheeler duo i think was that. Uh, it was at its very best during this season. This season, this series specifically, I think, may have been the best hockey that Mark Shifley has ever played. And he was physical in all three zones. He was defending well. Uh, his back check left was was exactly what you would ideally draw up. Um, you, you saw him playing with strength below his goal line and below the Predators' goal line as well. He was leading the NHL in playoff goals for an extremely long portion of time. Everything he touched seemed to turn to mm-hmm. goal. Um, and then Blake Wheeler, there's a good argument. I mean, there's a full decade of the guy being a top five even strength scorer in the entire NHL. And I think so many people overlook that and forget that. And it's, to me, almost a shame that he doesn't get that elite level recognition for a decade of his career. Um And at the same time, 2017, 2018, his point totals go off. And all of a sudden, we begin to recognize him as that elite talent. But his points totals go off because of his power play performance. And he puts together those back-to-back, is it 92-point seasons off off the back of his power play. And now he's getting talked about as one of the best players in the NHL. He was one of the best players in the NHL for a long time. But he's exactly, he's coming off of his aging curve. And at 5-on-5... He's closer to a good second-line winger than one of the best first-line wingers in the entire NHL. That said, by my way of reckoning, even though he's 31 years old in this series and that's on the downswing of the aging curve, and even though he wasn't tearing it up at five-on-five—he was very he was excellent at five-on-five, five, but not one of the few best that existed— um, he was a monster to me in this series and in this game.
1: He was, and I thought that Paul Maurice did a good job in this game of getting him and Shifley away from Ekholm and Subban more than they had in the first couple of games in Nashville. And, you know, you have Yossi and Ellis as the second pair, and and by all, by pretty much any measure, they would be anyone else's top pair. But just stylistically... I think they're not as physically equipped to handle the sheer sort of size and dominance of Wheeler and Shifley. And so they were able to kind of bully ball them a little bit as well. We're just kind of using their, their, their frame advantage to keep the puck away from them and keep the puck hemmed in the offensive zone. And so it was a bit of a tough matchup there for Nashville. And and you're right. I mean, they were, they were so good. And, and the two of them, it's such a beautiful partnership. Like I, that's what, this is the thing that I love more so than most things in hockey is Like that passer with the shooter and you see it with Shifley just hanging out in the middle between the two circles on the power play and Wheeler getting it to him and it's just like they're so well suited to play together it's really beautiful to watch
0: yeah absolutely and I I think they think the game in such a similar way that you can you can see that chemistry and they're they have different physical skill sets to be sure but they both do a lot of um, cycling back and forth, cutting back, but while they're doing that, they're perceiving so much of what else is going on on the ice. Like, if you were to ask any given player on the Winnipeg Jets to just stop, close their eyes, freeze frame, and tell you where all 10 skaters are and where they're going, Mark Steifley and Blake Wheeler would be the best two with that. And they see each other, they see each other's roots, and... Um, and Shifley can pass as well as he can shoot. I don't think Wheeler shoots or snipes nearly as well as Shifley does, but they can both do a lot of similar things. Um, and I, I really do think that Shifley is sort of Wheeler's heir apparent as captain Sirius uh, in in Winnipeg. And I think that's a fine attitude for for the city of Winnipeg and uh, given their skill sets as well. Um, I've said many times that for as long as Blake Wheeler is at his peak, Winnipeg is at least within spitting distance of contention. It may be that age isn't kind to Wheeler and Shifley is the guy and Wheeler falls off to whatever extent he can stay in that echelon and that, though that duo can work. That's sort of what you're looking at, I think, is Winnipeg's current window to win and what they'll rest their their forward hopes on. Absolutely.
1: Um, okay, who won the game? It's got to be Dustin Bufflin, right? Like just re-watching <laughs> this, it just, it, we talked about how it captured the full Dustin Bufflin experience. <laughs> But I mean, two goals, an assist, four shots, 27 12 of ice time, nine shot attempts with him on the ice at 5 on 5. It was 25 to 12 shot attempts, 16 to 5 shots on goal for the Jets. He was just dominating, doing it in a charismatic way, dancing up a storm. He had a couple other plays we talked about earlier where he was in tight against Renee and, and easily could have had a hat trick. And. It was just it's when I think about this game, and when I remember it, I will remember his performance more so than any others, even though you can make cases for how dominant Wheeler was uh you know Jacob Truba really changes this game and winds up having a Gordiao hat-trick. like there's a lot of contributors to this jets team and that helped them win this game and win this series, but for me, Bufflin's dominance was the thing that stuck out stuck out above all else
0: yeah I, when i when I think about it his he's the person that comes to mind the most above all else. You used the word transcends earlier. You know what? In Winnipeg, he does transcend hockey, and he's the sort of player that you know in the in the coffee shop lineups, people who don't know anything else about the team will know what Bufflin is up to and about. And peak joy, I think, was that series for Dustin Bufflin. And so, so there's that. I gotta say though, um, I gotta counter and say that for me, Blake Wheeler won the most. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, he was a force. Uh, the scoring chances that you talked about, he was creating for himself and his line mates all game long. There's the one that he skies above Pecarine right before the, um, the big turnaround in the game. There's chances at the other end of the ice in the first period. He's making interceptions on the penalty kill. He's running the power play. Um, he's basically imposing himself on the game. And then later that summer, he signs a five-year deal worth 45, $41.25 million from now until he's 38 years old. And believe you me, I think that cashing in on the season and series that he had makes Blake Wheeler one of the biggest winners uh, of that that night.
1: Certainly. I just wanted to commemorate Bufflin because it's crazy that we go from this, he winds up playing, including the rest of this postseason, 57 more NHL games. And who knows if we're ever even going to see him again. It's crazy to think about considering how good he was at this point, but... Um you know we we don't know have to open that whole can of worms, but it was just really nice to rewatch him again and just remember uh how fun it was to watch him play hockey at his apex and so I wanted to commemorate that, but certainly Wheeler, I mean, nearly played 23 minutes in this game, had 11 shot attempts, had five high danger shot attempts. Like he was just around the net the entire time and and was probably the most dominant player in terms of creating offense for the Jets. So uh, you certainly can't go wrong with that. Uh, I think that's about it. I think, I mean, listen, we're at the hour 45 minute mark here. So um, <laughs> we certainly uh, have gone uh, along here on time but I, I think we've also this game warranted it because there was so many things to get into and I think we did it justice like was there any other sort of angles or nuggets that we, we didn't touch on
0: well I'll just share from because I was able to talk to him very recently I asked Jacob Truba what life was like in the Jets dressing room after the first period in the first intermission when they were down three nothing and all of those great combat goals had yet to score and Jacob Truba is an honest, honest guy in the same way that he refused to indulge in the what ifism about if they had played uh, Vegas first and then Nashville. Um, when he says this, I believe him and he, he conveys a sense of calm saying that, you know, had had we not liked the way that we played, we would have probably been a little bit closer to panicking. But uh, at the end of the day we know that even if you go down uh, in this game, it's a playoff series. There's a next day. We knew that. There is a next game to win. Even if we win, there's a next game to win. And what he conveyed was that the Jets had such a a an, a an assertive confidence in the way that they'd been able to play all season, even in that first period when they go down. There's some bounces that work against them, and I guess they hung their hat on that. But there was just a, a high standard of excellence for so long that the belief was there that they were able to come back from three nothing down, and I'll pivot from that because um, it's one of the most compelling things about the Winnipeg Jets over the last few years to me is this: when when Winnipeg goes on, you know, they win this game, they beat Nashville in seven, they slay their dragon, they they beat the team that they've been lining up and sizing themselves up against all season long. They go in against Vegas and they lose, and they are genuinely trust me on this one shocked by that there is a palpable sense of disbelief in the dressing room when that series and that game is over because of that same belief built over an entire year of playing at the highest possible level and always finding a game three comeback when they needed one against St. Louis one year later there was no sense of disbelief in that dressing room Um, and
1: they were all ready to go to Cabo
0: Well, they thought going into the series, they said all the right things. But there was no sense of shock. And it it was an acceptance that, you know what? We had given up some leads late in the season. We had played poorly late in the season. Um, When things got hard, you know, there was a little bit of a that mental resilience was not there because they didn't have anything to point at. like to, to, to look at that example of them doing what they needed to do to overcome a moment like this 3 nothing hole against Nashville, they have to go back most of the year. And I think that that belief mattered so much. And looking back was a huge part of not only the Game 3 win, but the series win against Nashville.
1: Well, and you, you certainly look at it, I mean, losing Stasny Hurts, but for the most part, that team that lost to the Blues was... Uh, by all accounts, relatively intact from this team. And, and they just were so statistically inferior, especially down the stretch, that I uh, I personally picked the Blues to win that series because I was just like, I don't know what's going on in Winnipeg, but their underlying numbers have plummeted to the point where there's clearly something flawed with this team. And, and I don't see any reason why they're going to get it together. And so it's crazy to see sort of how much things have evolved over the past two years. But I think part of what made this series such a great rewatchable in this game in particular was not only did it live up to the hype not only was the hockey great but it was it was such a useful exercise to go back and look at how much things have changed discuss and reflect on why that's happened and i think that's what makes these rewatchables fun for me in particular i know some people say like oh, we know the result of the game what's the point of going to rewatch it but in these particular instances like this one i do feel like it's such a whirlwind experience in the moment. And there's so much happening that you can't really fully appreciate every single little piece of information until you kind of go back and reflect on it after time has passed. And and so hopefully you and I accomplish that not only for ourselves here, but for everyone listening at home.
0: Well, thanks for inviting me along with it. The big fear was always, would it live up to the memory? And it does. And I think when it does, it's worth a deep dive. So yeah, thanks a lot to me. Uh, do you have to, do
1: you want to plug some stuff? What, uh, what are you working on these days and where can people check out?
0: Well, of course, you know, Winnipeg Jets at The Athletic is, is where you'll, you'll find me. Twitter is WPG WPGMurat, W-P-G-M-U-R-A-T. I'm sure you'll tweet that as we promote yes. the, the show as well. So there's that. But, I mean, with the NHL's return to play plan, Winnipeg is in a, in a really unique position of having equal cup odds as lottery odds, um, small on both fronts. Yes. But there's a lot of different moving parts, and Winnipeg has had just a remarkable season from the Bufflin saga onward through whole pilot injuries, Connor about keeping them in the fight, and so much more. So it's an oddly fascinating time to think about the winnipeg jets despite the hockey purgatory that we're all kind of living in right now so the athletic is is where it's at awesome
1: man well uh keep up the good work and before we get out here i just wanted to quickly remind everyone uh we're building up quite a catalog here of games we watch so hopefully uh you've listened to them if not go back into the archives to do so stay at home stay safe with us Uh, get comfortable watch these games and uh Take a minute to go leave the show a rating and review. It's greatly appreciated at the, during these uh, crazy, uncertain times. So, Marat, thanks for taking the time. I know this was uh, quite the process and quite the exercise, and I gave you a lot of homework to do, but uh, you passed it all with flying colors, and hopefully we'll be able to have you back on sometime down the road.
0: Hey, I love the sounds of that. Thanks again.
1: The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at
0: and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash